Well, if you take your Bible this morning and open it to Mark chapter 2, I, I want to do something a little different this morning. I preached at Redeemer Church in Dubai on Mark chapter 2, and I thought with traveling back 15 hours in a plane that it might be helpful to remind ourselves of this wonderful truth found in Mark chapter 2, even as we think of Memorial Weekend, the freedom that those serving on our behalf, the men and women have, uh, who serve and who have even passed away serving our country, I was thinking as well as the forgiveness that is offered in the Lord Jesus Christ and the freedom that we have from our sins. But I bring you to Mark chapter 2, and I want to bring to you the account of the paralytic in chapter 2, 1 through 12. It is a wonderful, wonderful account. So I could just set the scene just for a second. As you head into Mark chapter 2, you don't have to know all of this, but there's five clashes. There's a series of five clashes that Jesus would have with the religious right. That would be the Pharisees, the scribes, and the Herodians. So from 2-1 down through 3-6 are those clashes. In fact, up until chapter 2-1, he's been the talk of the town, and everyone has been streaming to him. But for our time this morning on this Memorial Weekend, I want to bring you to the first clash, and it's in 2, 1 through 12. And the issue is over the authority of Jesus Christ to forgive sins. In fact, let me read the text to you. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even near or at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they, they let him down the bed on which, he, on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there and questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they were questioning within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he arose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never uh, seen anything like this or saw anything like this. May God bless the reading of his scripture. It's not hard to find the center point of this text. The focus of this entire healing of the paralytic is found in verse 10. That you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. 
That message that rung out by Mark is the message for you this morning. And for those watching, maybe on live stream, that you may know as you sit that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. I mean, I think you would agree with me. There's a lot I could say, but forgiveness of sins is the message of Christianity. I mean, that is the message. I mean, the ultimate question of all the people who have life and breath today is, how can a man be made right with a holy God? How can people be made right with holy God? And herein lies the message in Mark 2, 1 through 12. Let me set the setting before we dive in. Look at verse 1. It says there that when he had returned to Capernaum, Capernaum, he's in that town. He got back there. He returned to it. You say, well, where was he? Well, he was in greater Galilee, and that's part of the Capernaums in that greater Galilean ministry, and he had ministered in Capernaum. You say, how do you know that? Look back one chapter, maybe same page, verse 21, 121 of Mark. It says, when they went into Capernaum, so he, he's in Capernaum. In fact, glance down at 139. It says that he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in the synagogues and casting out demons. So he's in Capernaum, and I would have to say, as I told the people in Dubai last week, it is my favorite place in all of Israel. I mean, there's just something when I walk into that town and you're walking into the very synagogue where he cast out the demon. And then right next to the synagogue is Peter's mother-in-law. At least they think this would be the home where she lived. And you're in the place of so many miracles of Capernaum. There's just something that makes me walk in slow motion. And one day we'd love to take you there if you've never been there. But he ministered in Capernaum. And it says now, look at, again at the text in 2.1. It was, after some days in 2.1, it was reported that he was at home. Now, let me just stop there. There's some people who believe this was the home where they would go out in their itinerant ministry. The home of Peter and his brother, the, his, Peter's mother-in-law, but he's back at home. And look what the text says in 2.2. Imagine yourself there. Many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even near the door. So he's, he's teaching, it says there in 2.2, but uh, there's so many people there. He's back that there's not even room, not even near the door. You say, well, why would there be so many people there? Well, I don't want to go too long, but look back at 128, okay? He had cleaned out the man with the unclean demonic spirit in chapter 1. In fact, I'll read it to you, 126. And the, un and the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. Can you imagine watching that? And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And here it is. 
And at once, his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. Put yourself in that synagogue on the Sabbath, and this man is convulsing and crying and shrieking out. And the authority of Christ is so strong, he just commands that demon to come out of him, and his fame spread everywhere. In fact, look down in chapter 1. He, uh, uh, there's just so much there. In verse 32, that evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. It's amazing. You can imagine what was happening at this ministry. But it says in 33, and the whole city was gathered together at the door. I suppose it finds itself in its culmination in chapter 1 and verse 45 where he had healed the little leper. And he told the leper, see to it, and I'm in 144, that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer your cleansing, what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out, did the leper, and began to talk freely about it, to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out, of, it was out in desolate places, and the people were coming to him from what? Every quarter every quarter and so just put yourself in this scene he's now back he's back at home he's back at Capernaum and there's no longer room even near the door you say well what is he doing well look at the text I'll tell you what he's doing it says that he was to two uh, preaching the word to them. I'm not sure why ESV used preaching. That's a Greek word, keruso. That's not the word here in the translation. Here the word is laleo. He's in this house and he is speaking the word to them. And this is what he did. In fact, I would say it would look like you would think that he's doing his miracles more. And I would say, oh, no, no, far more in the gospels. He's preaching. He's teaching, and then the miracles backed up what he, he taught. In fact, this was what he was doing throughout his ministry. There's the setting. He's back home. The house is packed. You can't get in. There's no room even near the door. And this setting gives away to a crucial aspect of our Lord's authority. So let me present then the healing of the paralytic by way of four key words, okay? Four key words that demonstrate our Lord's authority to forgive sins. Listen, he's got authority over the demons. He can silence them. He has authority now to forgive sins. And we'll just walk through this by way of four key words so that you can see his authority. First, and they'll all be alliterated, the P, the paralytic, okay? You say, well, what happens? He's teaching the word to them, and they came, verse 3, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. So uh, you put yourself in the house, okay? 
It's packed. You can't get in. These four men come bringing a paralytic. They're bringing to him, the best I could say to you in the language, is a man that's motionless. His muscles do not move. He is probably, most likely, quadriplegic. And in that day, of course, there's no wheelchairs. There's not Johnny and Friends who delivers those all over to countries now. No, he must be carried. And he's carried, the text said, by these four men. Look at verse 4. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd. So Jesus is teaching. The house is packed. The word is out. He's back. And hope finds a place in the heart of this paralytic and maybe in the heart of these four men, but they can't get in the house. So what do they do? They, they go to the roof by way of a stairway outside the house. You say, is that possible? Certainly, it's entirely possible. These homes in Palestine were one story, and the, the, the weather's much like California, and then on the side of these homes would be a stairway. You'd go up the stairway, and you would be on the roof, and they would eat meals sometimes out there on that roof and enjoy sometimes those summer evenings when it would cool down. So that's what these men do. You say, what, what did they actually start doing on the roof? Well, look at, look at the text. It said they removed... <laughs> the roof above him, and when they had made an opening. Now, this is incredible. They removed the roof. You say, well, how did they do that? Well, the Bible says they dug an opening. You say, is that possible? And my answer would be yes. You say, well, why so? Now, that would not happen in a place like this. But in those days, the roofs were made, if you can picture this, by laying beams three feet apart from each other and laying them from wall to wall. And then sticks, a number of sticks were laid closely together across the beams. Then they covered those beams and that, those sticks with a thick matting material, usually made out of burnt clay. Sometimes it adds in Luke 7... Tiles were put down. But what I'm saying is they come and they can't get in and they go to the side and they bring them up and they take them on the roof and they begin to dig an opening for him. They begin to take the roof apart. They begin to take the matting apart and the sticks apart and, and the beams are there and whatever it is and they're beginning to remove it. Can you picture that seen. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. There is tearing. Think of Jesus inside teaching and it's packed. And then all of a sudden in the middle of his teaching, there's tearing and there's ripping and there's debris. And then there's sunlight. And then there's shouts. And maybe it was Simon Peter's mother-in-law and said, hey, wait a minute. Well, you know, what, what's... What's going on in there? And then the Bible says, look at it again. It said there that they let him down, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. 
Now, I think they let him down on a set of ropes, don't you? I don't think they just dropped him, right? I think it was a set of ropes. But can you imagine that moment right there, okay? Sunlight showing, dust coming down, debris coming down, and the Prince of Peace and the paralytic meet. I mean, there's part of me that thought these four could have gotten very afraid, but their faith persisted. Might be a fair question to ask each of us, what would you have done to get somebody to the Lord Jesus Christ? What do you do now even? What lengths do you go to to get people to the Savior? Their faith involved an act of trust in the Lord to meet the deepest need. In fact, look at verse 5 when it says, And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. So I take you from the, from the paralytic, secondly, to the, to the pardon. To the pardon. The Bible says there that he saw their faith. And he, he said, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, when it says they saw their faith, it certainly would speak of the four, but I think it also included the, the paralytic. And, and imagine, c- come back to the scene. The, they, they don't bring him for that reason. He's on a bed. He's laid out on a stretcher. There, if he had just cleaned out maybe virtually all disease in chapter 1. They're bringing this guy out of desperation, and then he finally gets to the bottom, meets Christ, and he said, son, your sins are forgiven. It is actually, you would agree, an outrageous statement. I believe the paralytic and his friends were hoping for a healing, and he says, your son, son, your sins are forgiven. It's It's not really why they came. In fact, here's the power of the language here. Forgiven is in what we call the emphatic position. You're you're reading your sins are forgiven, but in the language, the thought is forgiven this moment are your sins. Forgiven this moment to the paralytic, your guilt is gone. It's what Jesus declares. Forgiven this moment, your shame, if you will, is gone. Your guilt's gone. Your shame's gone. Your burden has been lifted. So Jesus Christ gives this man forgiveness. Forgiveness is God's greatest gift because it meets man's greatest need Sin itself is a transgression of God's law. Sin itself defiles God's image in man. Sin stains the soul with Satan's image, if you will. Sin itself is rebellion against God. In fact, sin is incurable by man itself. The Bible tells us that sin affects the total man. It affects his body, his mind, his soul, his spirit. It brings men and women, if you will, under the dominion of Satan. 
It condemns man and woman to the wrath of God. It subjects people to emptiness. Sin brings a lack of peace. Sin would condemn someone to eternal hell without someone repentant. And Jesus Christ says, forgiven are your sins. I mean, beloved, just on this memorial weekend, is not the greatest news in all of the world the forgiveness of your sins? Is that not the greatest news? And so here is the paralytic, but here is the pardon. But thirdly, there's a problem in the text, a problem. Look at it. You said there's a problem. What could be a problem with that? Well, look at verse 6. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there, look how it says it, questioning in their hearts. So it mentions here in this context the scribes. Who are they? The PhDs of religion. And I'm sure they're in the house and I'm sure they're seated and positioned perfectly to hear the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm sure they've got their suspicious hats ready to pounce on Jesus. And they're reasoning in their hearts. And one thing's for sure, instead of love, there was indifference. You say they're reasoning in their hearts. What were they thinking? Well, the Bible tells us, look in 2.7, here's what they're thinking. Here's what they were reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak like that? They're thinking. He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but what? But God alone. And that would be a true statement, would it not? I mean, only God has the prerogative to forgive sins, true? And that's what it says, and I could quote scripture after scripture, but one, just in Luke, excuse me, in, in Exodus 34, remember when God revealed his glory to Moses, and he told him to get in the cleft of the rock, and he let his glory pass by, and it said something like this, the Lord God, the Lord, Lord, God who is compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. So listen, beloved, only God can forgive sins. The only prerogative ever for anybody to be uh, forgiven is God So you say, that's what they were thinking. What did Jesus say? Look at the text in verse 8. Immediately, this is somewhat frightening, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they had questioned within themselves, said to him, why do you question these things in your heart? You know, it's kind of amazing. Although they could master the letter of the law, although they could hold their tongues here because it was just reasoning in their hearts, here they could not hold truly what was in their hearts because the heart reader was there. Jesus did not, according to John 2.25, need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he knew himself what was in man, John 2.25. You know from 1 Samuel 16, 7, the Lord looks at the, what? Heart. He knew what was in the heart. He knew they were thinking that way. 
so masterfully, he asked him a question. Look at verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Amazing. Can you imagine all this happened and the roof's, you know, it's being torn apart. They dig an opening. They lower this guy. They lower it in the lap. And rather than a miracle, son, your sins are forgiven. They start to reason in their hearts. And he says, which is easier to say? And I'd ask you, which is easier to say? I mean, it's a fair question. I mean, on the one hand, if I'm just answering it theologically, both of those are miracles, Right? Both statements are a miracle, either to cause the guy to rise and walk, that's the supernatural, and certainly you would know and I would know that only God has the authority to forgive sins, but I believe there's a key word here, my thought in verse 9, is which is easier to, what, say? I think it's easier to say, son, your sins are forgiven, than to tell him, rise, get up, and walk. Because I guarantee you, if you were out at the beach today, where I grew up by in Santa Monica, in Venice, there might be some people out there walking on Venice today who think they're Jesus Christ and have the authority to forgive someone's sin. It might be, in this case, easier to to pronounce the forgiveness of sins than provide proof that he really had the authority to do it. So maybe the miracle, at least in the scribe's perspective, is more uh, important and more difficult because it must be proved. It must be demonstrated. So you've got the paralytic, the pardon, the problem. And finally, would you look there? The proclamation. So look what he says. But that you may know, I just would have loved to have been there that day, that the Son of Man, by the way, let me just stop there for a second. Why Son of Man? Why not Messiah? Why not Lord? Why does he call himself the Son of Man? There's many different designations of the Lord Jesus Christ, but this was the one he most commonly used. And the Son of Man, if you take it back to the book of Daniel, is a description of his deity. But he says in 2.10 there, but you may know that the Son of Man has authority, uh, it says, on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, look, I say to you, rise, three commands, Pick up your bed and go home. Now, if you're just sitting there in the house, it must have been one of those moments you're just like, I mean, the credibility of his entire ministry would result on the outcome of this command. And Jesus says, in order that you may know that I have authority to forgive sin that you cannot see, Jesus was going to do what they could see, okay? Look what happened in verse 12. Put yourself back in that home where it says, and he rose. Now, I'm pausing. He rose. He might have been a quadriplegic all his life. We don't know that. 
But if, you, if your muscles are not working for that long, the very fact that he rose, verse 12 again, and it picked up his bed, and he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we have never saw anything like this. I mean, could you just in that moment imagine his own joy? Imagine were his friends looking down from the roof? Just were they high-fiving? Were they fist-bumping? Luke in his gospel says that they were seized with astonishment. Literally, they, in Luke's gospel, were out of their minds, okay? So, okay, let me, let me draw it down. I mean, this passage certainly clarifies his identity, or shall I say his deity, that forgiveness of sin is the exclusive right of God, You say, what's the point of this passage? Jesus Christ today has the authority to forgive your sin. He is God. And so I ask this question of you, what's the greater miracle? Is it the healing or is it the forgiveness of sins? I mean, certainly the paralytic went home walking, but far more important was his pardon before God. I I mean, what's incredible here is this. Gone was his shame. Gone was his guilt. Gone was his dirty conscience. Oh, his body one day, after he rose, went out. His body one day, like all of us, would be laid in the ground, but his spiritual life would rise and last forever. Listen, beloved. This is what the scriptures say. Micah 7.18. Who is a God like you that pardons iniquity? Who? Who does that? Only God. Micah 7.19. Thinking of your sins and mine, you, speaking of God, will cast all their sins into the depths of the what? Sea. Who can do that? Only Christ. A priest can't do that. Only Christ, only God can forgive sin. No wonder the psalmist said in Psalm 32, 1, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven whose sin is covered. I just want to stop and pause. Is your sin covered? Do you have the forgiveness of your sin? So the psalmist, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. In other words, all your sin. Do you remember when the psalmist said in 103.2, you might be able to quote it, 103.12, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our, what, 
transgression from us. You talk about authority. Authority doesn't lie in politics. Authority doesn't lie in education. Authority doesn't lie in the power of the government or the stock market. Authority lies in the person of Jesus Christ to forgive all your sins. Amen? That's authority. Authority lies in the forgiveness of your sins. God said in Isaiah 43, 25, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgression. Sometimes I think you put it all on a whiteboard and I, even I, I wipe out all your transgressions for my own sake. And then he says, does God in Isaiah 43, that I will not remember your sins. I will not remember you. You say, well, Scott, isn't he omniscient? Yes. It's a promise. What do you mean it's a promise? It's a promise. What, what is forgiveness? Just so that we're not on another angle. What does it mean for God to forgive sins? Just so we're not just putting words out. To forgive is the Greek term aphiame. Aphiame. So, son, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are aphiame. What, what, what does that mean? I'll tell you. Just, it, it, words mean something. It means to release. Jesus said, I let go. It means to let go. It means to dismiss is the thought. It means that he no longer holds your sins against you, is the thought. In the Old Testament, the verb for forgiveness meant to lift, and it meant to carry, and it portrayed sin as being carried from the sinner. What a picture. Let me, let me see if I could describe it for you by way of a definition. Forgiveness is an act of God releasing the sinner from judgment and freeing you from the penalty of sin. And God does that. God forgives you based on the work of Christ on the cross. And when God forgives your sin, Grace Church of the Valley... He, maybe I should say it slowly, he no longer holds your sin against you. He cancels the debt of your sin. Your sin at salvation is completely removed. You say, what do you mean by that? It's remembered no more. It's hurled into the depths of the sea. One Puritan put it like this. Your sins are remitted as if they had never been committed. I like that. You say, well, but Scott, a little bit closer. I want you to get this. What is forgiveness? Well, it's those things. It's to release, to dismiss. It's, uh, I, I mentioned that. But ultimately what forgiveness is, is it's a promise 
of God that he will never, ever, ever bring your sin back up against you. That's what it is. Now, let me clarify something for you. Forgiveness of sin runs alongside two trajectories. You got to get this right, okay? The Bible first, I would say, teaches that all sin, past, present, and even future, is forgiven through faith, through the atoning death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our eternal destiny is sealed and set at the moment of justifying faith. So when I got off my knees at 14, he had forgiven me all my sin. Our depth of intimacy and fellowship then, on the other hand, is certainly affected adversely when we fail to confess our sin or when we fail to repent of our daily sin. But our eternal destiny has already and forever been determined. And so there's a recognition then of the distinction between eternal forgiveness of the guilt of sin that is ours the moment that we embrace Jesus Christ in faith. And then there's a difference between temporal forgiveness of sin that we need on a daily basis that enables us to experience intimacy with the Father so we confess our sins, okay? Because you're saying, if he forgave all my sins, why do I still need to confess? Because there's an intimacy there. So if you're making notes, this is important, there is a judicial forgiveness, or if I called it eternal forgiveness, where God is the judge and he justified you and that is full and complete. That's eternal judicial forgiveness. Temporal or even parental forgiveness is where God is a father and that involves our intimacy and so we confess our sin to him. But let me just take you one thought further and I take you to a a famous uh, preacher by the name of Spurgeon because he's always, he ministers to my heart. And I, I want you to understand this and then know this so that you can share this with people. I like how Spurgeon said it. He said, if Christ, and I'm actually saying this for you, because there's some of you who just, you're forgiven, but you don't walk in joy. You're forgiven, but you feel guilty. You're forgiven, but Pastor Scott, 15 years ago I did this, Are you a believer? Yes, I'm a believer, but it's still nagging you. Well, have you confessed that sin? Yes, Pastor Scott, I've confessed that sin a thousand times. Well, if you've confessed that sin, why do you keep confessing that sin? Well, it just keeps coming up. And so what you have is you have believers who never know how to walk in the fullness of free and absolute forgiveness. Their conscience is bothering them. And if you need to confess something, do so. But at the same time, you got to remember what he did and what he declared. So Spurgeon said this, if Christ took your load, your load cannot remain on your own back. If Christ paid your debts, then they do not stand in God's book against you. How can they? It stands to reason that if your substitute has taken your sin and put it away, your sin lies no more on you. 
God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven you. Get a hold of that grand truth and hold it, though all the devils of hell roar at you. Grasp it as with a hand of steel. God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven me. It is not here and there a sin that he blotted out, but the whole horrible list and catalog of our offenses he has destroyed at once. That's what he did. So he went on to say the substitution of our Lord was finished, has finished that matter even to perfection. All of our transgressions are swept away at once, carried off as by a flood, and so completely removed from us that no guilty trace of them remains. He said, they're all gone. Oh, believers, think of this, for all is no little thing. Sins against a holy God, sins against a loving son, sins against the gospel as well as against the law, sins against man as well as against God, sins of the body as well as sins of the mind, sins as numerous as the sands of the seashore and as, as, and as great as the sea itself. All of, he said, in all from us as far as the east from the west. All this evil, Spurgeon said, rolled up into one great mass and laid on Jesus. Having borne it all, he has made an end of it forever. When the Lord forgave us, he forgave us the whole debt. He did not take a bill and say, I strike out this item and that, but he took a pen and through it all, he said, paid. Jesus took the handwriting that was against us and nailed it to the cross to show that before the entire universe that its power to condemn us had ceased forever, we have full forgiveness. Amen? It is why on this Memorial Day we can say in Romans 8.1, there is now therefore no, what? Condemnation. Listen, if, as you walk out today, if you know this truth, then you have reason <laughs> to have the greatest joy in all of the world. If you know this truth, who are you going to share this with? Who are you going to share the full pardon of all of our sins? Oh, yes, we daily at times confess our sin because of intimacy. But in the whole, he's already forgiven us past, present, and even future sins that we'd walk in joy before him. And when we know the affliction of a guilty conscience at times, because he gave us one, and we grieve the Spirit, and we quench the Spirit, then we confess our sins, and he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, do you, as you sit here this morning, I just individually, do you have the freedom of that forgiveness? And I'm telling you, Jesus Christ, by virtue of who he is, has the authority to wipe out all your sins. You say, well, what must I do? Well, you need to repent, number one, and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You say, well, why would I repent? Well, I just say this. And you probably don't look at it like this. Your sin is not just against one another. This is where our world lives. You, you send against me, I send against you. Uh, you send, I send. Okay, will you forgive me? Yes, I forgive you. Please say forgiveness. This is how you do it with your children. And we get going this way all the time. But has it ever occurred to you that every sin you've ever committed is a vertical sin against a holy God? Psalm 51, David said, against thee, 
and thee only have I what? Sinned. And so you repent of sin in your life. You say, well, Scott, I'm not that bad of a sinner. Well, you might not be as bad as someone who's murdered people, but the truth is, whoever keeps the whole law and stumbles at one point, he's become guilty of the whole thing. And a word to you as parents, rather than raising moral kids, which you need to raise moral kids, your own children in your home ought to be seeing their own sins so that you can bring them to the foot of the cross, so that they cry out, to the, to the Lord as Savior who can forgive their sins. Well, listen, we've got a wonderful, merciful Savior, don't we? Love him this day and share this good news with someone.